Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Samuel 28, verses 15 through 18. This is the word of God. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I should do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you didn't obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this morning again that we can gather together and look to your word. We ask that you would open our hearts and minds to see into your word these great stories that show us the rise of of, uh, David as he now prepares to take the kingdom of Israel. So bless our hour this morning, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you've been with us the past number of weeks, uh, you know that we're covering the book of 1 Samuel into 2 Samuel, the life of David. And as we do, we see it beginning with Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel, and his life, of course, was intimately entwined with David's in their first uh, work together for Israel. But as we come to these chapters today, and as we just heard read, we see Saul now toward the end of his sanity. In fact, as we'll see, toward the end of his life. He's got about 72 hours to live, and we're going to see his downward spiral to this point. So let's go ahead and begin. We're going to pick up in chapter 28 in just a moment. But to kind of set the scene of where we're at, I want to just touch on a few things from chapter 27. And we're going to do some hard work today, and that's basically read the entire story before us. There's little more I can add to it except read it and make comments as we go. So follow along with me in your Bible if you have one. Uh, We'll read together. So beginning first in chapter 27, we see now David fleeing down towards the Philistines. He's being chased by Saul. David now finds himself in need of some place of security. But rather than choose a place where God might have him be, perhaps, he chooses instead to run back down to the Philistines. These were the enemies of Israel. And so in chapter 27, then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David's solution is to go to his enemy's enemy, and that's the Philistines. So David, in verse 2, David arose and went over. He and the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath. He and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, He no longer sought him, David. And so at this point in David's life, he appears to have got what he wanted, and that's some sort of security 
from Saul. But to get this, he has to find himself now down in the land of the Philistines with Gath. Now, you might remember the first stories we had with Achish. He was the king of Gath. There were five cities of the Philistines. He was one of those. Uh, and David first met Achish down in chapter 21 when David went down there and acted crazy before the king so he wouldn't be killed by the Philistines. And of course, the Philistines had, in their long memory, knew that David was the one who had killed Goliath. And so David now, being able to worm his way back into good graces with the Philistines, is actually quite a feat. But that's what David's now doing. So he's down with Achish in the land of the, of the Philistines, uh, finding refuge from Saul. Verse 5, then David said to Achish, if I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of my country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Ziklag, as we see, will be the center point of the story that proceeds forward in many ways. Ziklag is where David would now spend his next coming year and a half. Therefore, he uh, therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. And so for 16 months, David is going to live in Ziklag, in a place where he's protected from the Philistines. He's not exactly with the Philistines, but he's also got some distance from Saul. Verse 8, now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerizites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the lands from of old, as far as Shur to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive. But he would take away the sheep, the ox, and the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. And when Achish asked, so Achish would ask, so what you been doing, David? He said, well, I've been down there making strikes, forays against all these, these uh, people. But what did David say? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeremiahites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. So David would tell Achish, I'm making forays against these towns of the Judahites, but he wasn't. He was instead striking against the enemies of the Israelites, but he couldn't, and, and they weren't the enemies of the Philistines, they were just kind of neutral, but David was doing work on behalf of the Israelites, but telling Achish the Philistine that he was kind of doing work on his behalf. So David's now leading something that is double life he's got going on here. He's with the Philistines fighting and doing the work of the Israelites, the work that Saul wasn't doing. Uh, verse 11, And David would leave neither man nor woman alive and bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell us about and say, So David has done. Uh, such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And verse 12 is important. And Achish trusted David, thinking, He has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. And so now the story's laid out for us as we hit chapter 28. David's living in Ziklag, which is towards the southern end of the land of Israel. It's down just as far as you can get before you start hitting the desert areas, uh, the areas of the Negev. Uh, the, some translations will have Negev with a V and others Negev with a B. Uh, the proper uh, way to transliterate it is with a V. Uh, so it's Negev, if you cared. But... Uh, and that's why I've always said it in a gift. So he's down there towards this desert fighting against these, these kingdoms, these warlords from the south. But he's telling Achish he's helping him by making war against uh, the Judahite uh, kingdoms. Uh, and so Achish says, David, who once slew Goliath, is now my guy. He's doing my work. David feels 
like he's working on behalf of Israel. Achish feels like David's working on behalf of him. Uh, in the end, we have David sort of operating as this neutral area, as something of a, 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 a place where he's fighting, doing his own work. And so we have to see how that plays out. Now, chapter 28 continues. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, I understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. And David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what, out, what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. As long as David was in Ziklag for those 16 months, making war towards the south, he was in a good position, able to protect himself with his 600 men. He had grown from 400 from the, the cave of Abdullah we saw earlier, now 600 men. And these were discontents. These guys weren't happy, as we'll see. Uh, but uh, now the war came, the war between the Philistines and the Israelites. And this put David in a real pickle because now he finds himself in a situation where He's either going to fight on behalf of the Israelites and, and now go to war with Achish, who would certainly kill him with the Philistines, or he's going to go to war on behalf of the Philistines and fight against his own countrymen. And that, would, of course, would forever disqualify him to be a king in Israel if he was the one that brought war against Israel, if he was the one that caused the death of Saul. So David, having worked his way in a situation he thought he could handle, now found circumstances spiraling out of control. At this point, Achish says to David, I'm going to make you the head of my bodyguard. Now, the Hebrew word that's used there is really, you're the one to guard my head. You're going to see this is a kind of, this is funny in the, uh, the story as you read ahead, because this is the, uh, the author's way of laying out some uh, foreshadowing of things to come. But David is going to be the guard of Achish's head. Uh, he's now responsible. So Achish thinks he's got some guy that's really going to help him out. David's now in a pickle. Now, at this point in the story, the author cuts it off. And so now we're going to pick up on a brand new story in, in verse 3. And we're going to pick up on this story only as we hit chapter 29. Now, this is interesting because it appears like the author, what we have here now is a story being told out of chronological order. And so we're going to go to a different place in time a few days uh, later as we see what Saul is now doing. When we hit chapter 29, we're going to jump back in time to pick up the story where we're left off here. But what the author is doing for us is setting up a contrast between, Samuel on the, uh, between Saul on the one hand and David on the other. These two men's lives are illustrating something for us in this passage. Saul was one called by God to be the king of Israel, but in his disobedience, he's now found himself in a place where he's spiraling downward into sin, into rebellion, into the mire. David, on the other hand, the now anointed next king of Israel, finds himself in a pickle where he's got to figure out, how am I going to handle this crazy situation I've got myself into? So let's look now, focusing now ex exclusively on the life of Saul in verse 3. Verse 3 tells us two things. Now Samuel, Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. So verse 3 is now resetting the stage. The first thing is Samuel is now dead. Now, he had been dead for some time. We saw that back in chapter 25. Samuel had long been dead, 
but it's important to the story going forward, so the author tells us again here. Samuel's dead. You remember that? Samuel's dead. The second thing he says is, Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. Uh, last night when Deanne was kind of reading ahead to kind of get prepared for the Sunday morning to know what the story is, she asked me, what are necromancers? And I said, well, if you figure out, let me know so I know what to tell these people in the morning. <laughs> but I did some looking up and found... What we have here is, is uh, Leviticus 17 and Deuteronomy 18 has a, a law, God's law, that said the, there shall be no necromancers, no mediums. These are the people, the witches, and so we know of the witch of Endor, as we'll see. These are the people who attempted to communicate with the dead so they might know the future. And the worldview that allowed this to happen is a worldview in which, it's very different from the monotheistic worldview of the Israelites, but it's a worldview in which the gods, the multiple gods, uh, have a, a realm that they live in. The dead have a realm they live in. And for those who are kings, those who are leading people, leading prophets perhaps, they might find their afterlife in some admixture in the realm of the gods. And so may have some information about the future. And so this is part of the Canaanite pagan religion. It's the same thing in Egypt. It's the same thing in Babylon. It's the same thing in so many places. Even hundreds of years later, the Romans did the same thing. Uh, they would have these mediums who would uh, look at the entrails of dead animals and foretell the future. Uh, hepatoscopy, the looking at the liver, is what they would do. They would look at a liver and be able to tell, they would think, tell what the future might be by hearing from the dead. And so the pagan religions is something the Israelites would always struggle with, but they would have this tendency to want to go somewhere. Saul now finds himself going to this place, a place where he thinks he's going to find some answer about his future by going to a medium, a necromancer. And so we see the story being told. Now, Saul had outlawed it as Leviticus and Deuteronomy told him to, but now what's he do? Uh, he now goes to one. Have you ever seen a situation where those who make the laws also break the laws? The laws are for you and not for me? Never. No, no, never. <laughs> but that's exactly what we have with Saul going on here. And that's, you got the point. Saul now is doing exactly what he knew he shouldn't be doing. And so in verse 4, uh, let's go to verse 3 again. And Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him, and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. Verse 4, the Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. And so now, if you remember the geography, we have an encampment. This is now the night before the war. And so we have the, the uh, uh, Philistines at Shunem. And Saul at Gilboa. Gilboa is a, a mountain about 1,000 feet high, a hill that rises up from the Jezreel Valley in the middle. So Saul is to the south on Mount Gilboa. He's looking down in the valley. The uh, Philistines who were in the valley have moved to Shunem, which is nearby, looking down. Now they've got a place of war in the valley of Jezreel. And this we're going to see many times later in Scripture. But that's where uh, Saul now finds himself. The Philistines are actually to the north of the Israelites. The Philistines, of course, live in the south along the Mediterranean. They've now moved north, it appears, and cut off any support that Saul may have got from the tribes of Galilee or from the north. And so Saul, with the men that he has, are behind 
and separated from Galilee. They're now behind to the south of the Philistines. And so we see continuing in verse 5. And when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by the Urim or the prophets. Saul, who was, we've told before, a fearless man, is now a man consumed by fear. He's now got himself in a place where he sees the Philistines rising in power and coming against him. Now, the Philistines in the past had pretty much stayed in their land to the south. They had shared this small area and stayed to the south towards the coast. The Philistines, you might remember, are a people, the sea peoples, that uh, were part of the, uh, the, the Iron Age collapse. They had come hundreds of years before, the 1500s, 1400s, moving into Asia Minor, moving down into Egypt, moving from Egypt north into where they would be in what is today the Gaza Strip. This is their land now. They found a place to be. They were a warrior type of people. They were skillful on the oceans. They had great skill. And so now we see uh, uh, Saul now facing them. And the reason they now felt comfortable moving up into Israel is because Saul and his leadership had weakened Israel to such an extent that they could now make their way that direction. And so Saul's weakness as a king invited this aggression from the Philistines, and he's afraid. Verse 6, And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, the Urim, or the prophets. There's three ways God had allowed the prophets of Israel to communicate with him. And so we have uh, God would communicate occasionally through dreams, uh, through the Urim, which was uh, part of uh, the, the priestly uh, uh, component, uh, and through the prophets. Verse 7, Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And a servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Endor is the place where the medium, the witchy woman, would be. If you remember the old TV show, Bewitched, her mom was Endora. And so we see this in popular literature all over the place, Endor being associated with this sort of uh, witchcraft. And so uh, verse 8, Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. Notice a couple things here. Saul disguises himself, and when he does, to do that, he has to take off his kingly garments. The king that was Saul is now taking those things off, putting a disguise on to hide his true identity and sneaking his way to Endor. Now, going back to the, 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 the geography of this battle, Saul and his men are on Mount Gilboa. To get to Endor to the north, he has to squirrel himself along the side where the Philistines were. So by disguise, he makes his way north to Endor to find this medium. Uh, and as we continue uh, uh, in verse uh, 9, well, he goes in verse uh, 8, continues, And they came back to the woman by night, and that's when you go see a, a, a medium, uh, by night. And he said, divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. And so he invites this medium, do this for me, bring up whoever I name to you. But she has a response. And the woman says to him, surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why are you then laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? She didn't recognize him. His disguise was good enough. She didn't recognize him as being Saul. And she told this stranger, you know, I can't do this. Saul, again, has made it illegal for us to practice this trade, so I can't do that. Otherwise, I'll be in trouble. In verse 10, but Saul swore to her by the Lord, 
as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Do you see again the humor, the irony the author gives us here? Saul swears by the Lord that no harm will come to her for disobeying the Lord and acting as a spirit medium with the dead. So he promises on God's behalf that there will come no harm to her to do exactly what is against God's will. And that's exactly where spiritually he has arrived at. Do you ever know anybody that justifies their sin in some fashion, has a way of kind of looking at things saying, oh, no, you know, this is okay. It's okay. God approves of this. When you know absolutely well he doesn't, that's what we have here with Saul. And then the woman said, okay, she agreed. We'll do this. Whom shall I bring up for you? That's her, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. Now, events happen that's not described in verse 12. And the woman saw Samuel, and she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. So when this apparition comes up, and this, this, uh, this woman of Endor, uh, the Hebrew describes her as uh, a woman of the ghost. She's a, a ghost woman. She brings up and she sees an apparition of some kind, the text described as Samuel. Uh, and this scares her to death. Why? Probably because she had never seen such a thing before. Most of the time, this is just scamming going on. And if you can pretend to read the entrails of the dead animals and chicken and all of this stuff uh, and make money from it, then you do that. But now she sees something. And this is, frankly, a place in this. This is the hardest passage in the Old Testament to kind of understand exactly what's going on. And so if you're confused, that you're with everybody else. But we see something happen here. Uh, is this Samuel or is it not? What do we see happening here? Can you really bring up the ghost of a dead person? Again, in the ancient conception of reality, there was Sheol underneath where the dead went in sort of a sleepy state that they thought could be brought up to tell them about the future. And then she sees this guy come up. Looks like Samuel. She recognizes Saul. Now she's terrified. Here she was at home, you know, brewing whatever, witches brew in the evening. And she has in her house now Samuel on the one hand and Saul at the same time, an evening she didn't expect. Verse 13, and the king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. This is the, the word God is Elohim, the word you know. It's a use of a spirit generically here coming up out of the earth. There, Eretz, the land. And he said to her, what is his appearance? Saul can't see him. So he asked, what's he look like? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. For the first time in a long time now, Saul gives respect to Samuel that he owed him a long time ago. But only after Samuel's death and only after Saul finds himself in such a terrible, dire straits. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? That's the question. And Saul gives the, the answer to it. I am in great distress, distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I should do. Now, do you ever know anybody that goes seeking an answer only after they get in the worst of pickles? And he says, the problem I have now is the Philistines are about to destroy my kingdom, and God's not answering me anymore. And that's been for some time. God hasn't answered Saul in a long, long time because of Saul's disobedience. 
but he's only now beginning to acknowledge it and recognize it and admit to it. And so uh, he asked, what should I do, Samuel? In verse 16, this powerful words from Samuel, and Samuel said, uh, why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. And here we see this, this final prophecy being reaffirmed. The kingdom's coming from you, Saul, and it's going to David. And this story continuing in the next several sermons, you'll see, is really the establishment of the Davidic kingdom. Verse 18, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Because of your disobedience in not destroying Amalek, the Amalekites, who we see will be now a terror to the Israelites again uh, in the next chapters. So the Lord will give uh, Israel also uh, with you into the land of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. You and your sons, Jonathan even, will be dead tomorrow in the battle because of your disobedience. And the Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Verse 20. Then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. He hadn't eaten anything probably because it's the fast uh, before you consult with a medium, perhaps because we're in war, didn't have food available. Feeding, you know, thousands of men can be hard. And so, uh, verse 21, And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I've done what you asked. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to you what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant, me, she said. Let me set before you a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants together, the woman urged him, and he listened to their words. So she arose from the earth and sat on, uh, he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fatted calf in the house, and she quickly killed it, and she took flour and kneaded it and made bread. So she made bread to carbo-load him up and give him some protein with a fatted calf and send him on his way to war, I suppose, but in fact, as we'll see, to his death. So he rose up and went away that night. So now we see this event with Saul and the witch at Endor. Verse 29 picks up, and we see now David being the central story. So now point two, David's life on the wrong side of history. Verse 29, or chapter 29, we see where we're at. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek. And this is now to the south. Now we're going back three days, three days from the end. Three days before this night at Endor. And the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. That's where the Israelites are, where the war will be. Verse 2, as the lords of the Philistines were passing by on the hundreds and by the thousands, and David and his men were passing by in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? So remember, we have Achish with David as his bodyguard, the one guarding his head, and, and they're all marching by, getting ready in formation to march north for three days to go to war. And the Philistine warlords, the generals, saw these Israelites there. Why are there Israelites among us? And Achish said, oh, no, no, David's great. He's good for us. He's helpful. Uh, and so Achish commends David in front of them. Uh, and Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and for years since he deserted to me? I have found no fault in him to this day. In verse 4, 
But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. Uh, he shall not go with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. Do you see how these Philistine warlords recognized that David, who had killed thousands, could not be on our side, really. When it came down to war now with the Israelites, can we really trust David? And here we see this subterfuge that David is kind of playing out, uh, him being rescued from it by the providence of God. Uh, and again, as it continues, For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David, of whom they sing to one another in dances, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. This ditty we've seen three times now, I think, in 1 Samuel. Saul his thousands, David his ten thousands. And you can imagine if there was radio stations in the ancient world, you would have the Philistine radio station talking about how great they are. Saul would have control of the state media of Israel. But there's that little rebel entry out there, that little rebel radio station proclaiming, and they played this song continually. And the Philistines are hearing this on the radio. They hear all the time the singing of how great David is. Can we really trust him? In verse 6, Then Achish called to David and said to him, trying to now explain to David, As far as the Lord lives, you have been honest to me, and it seems right that you should march out with me into battle in this campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the Lord did not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not be, it may not displease the lords, the warlords of the Philistines. And so Achish tells David, you can't go with us to battle. I'm sorry about that. I know you wanted to go kill Israelites, but you can't do that. David now sees in God's providence all this being worked out. This a solution he could not find on his own. He couldn't abandon the Philistines because as soon as he did that, they would have chased after him and killed him. He couldn't have killed Israelites because now he would have been forbidden to take over the kingdom of Israel, as he was called. Instead, he has the, the Philistine warlords rightly assess his character, unlike Achish. They see in David a man who will fight on behalf of Israel when it comes down to it and against us and the Philistines. And while we're going forward against the Israelites, David's going to be whacking off our heads from behind. And so Achish apologizes and sends David on his way. But notice in verse 8, David continues to play this up. And David said to Achish, but what have I done? And David's asked this question a number of times. But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your servants until now that I may not go down and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? Now again, in the, the beautiful structured Hebrew literature here, we have this ambiguity being played out for us. When David says... Uh, what have I done uh, that, you're, that I enter the day so that I may not go down and fight against the enemies of the Lord my king? When Achish hears that, he's hearing David say, you, Achish, are my Lord. What have I done that you won't let me go fight against the Israelites? But what David is saying is, what have I done that I might fight against you? And so David is playing this out. In verse 9, And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are blameless in my sight as an angel of God. He'd been so good. Uh, as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to battle. Now the, they rise, then now then rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. 
So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So David departs and goes south back down to Ziklag, we saw in chapter 27. He goes back down to his place where he'd been living the last 18 months, 16 months. In Ziklag, where he left his wife and his 600 men had left their wives and children and families and everything. So David is going to sit this war out. He goes back down to Ziklag. The Philistines now march north. They'll encircle around the Israelites, cut them off at the pass of Jezreel, and then engage in war up there for three days. So now David in chapter 30, uh, we see our final point, David's revenge and rise. And this story becomes uh, fascinating here as it continues. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, it's about 50 miles, so it's a hard march down there, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. And they had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. And they killed no one, but they carried them off and went their way. So David and his men, thinking they're sitting one out, get back home to Ziklag and find it's burned. But there's no bodies around. There's no burnt bodies. And so they know they weren't killed there. They've been taken captive and moved somewhere else. Maybe killed later, we don't know. David doesn't know. But now he's uh, in distress. Imagine coming home and finding everything you own, your wives, children, your families, everything is all gone. Verse 3. And when his men, and when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, their wives and son and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. If you've ever suffered such great loss, you know what it means to cry until you can't cry anymore. Distress, you can't feel it anymore. The pain is numbing. That's where David's at with his men after this this three-day march back down to Ziklag. uh, They now find everything burned. Verse 5, David's two wives also have been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. So David could not have been at a worse point in his life. He's in distress. He's lost his wives. He's lost his everything. And now his people are going to stone him. He hears, they're coming after you, David. And notice what he does. He strengthens himself in the Lord his God. That's how verse 6 ends. He strengthens himself. This is when David realizes something Saul never did. And when you're in distress, when you're in trouble, you go to God. He goes to God in faith and says, God, I'm at the end. I've got no answers now. The game I played with the Philistines has left me endangered. I've escaped that, but now I've lost everything. And he goes to God for strength. And David said to Abiathar, the priest. Remember Abiathar from chapter 21, 22, when uh, uh, Ahimelech, his father, was killed by Saul with the 85 priests of Nob. So Saul had killed all the priests of a city called Nob, which is a few hundred yards from Jerusalem. Uh, on Mount Scopus today, been Israel, it's on Mount Scopus. Uh, they're gone. Saul has cut off all these priests. And so Abiathar is now the priest who escaped to David in chapter 22. Abiathar is uh, still with David. So he goes to Abiathar, bring me the ephod. And this is a priestly garment by which he could speak to God. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord. When in need, David knew, seek the Lord's guidance. Shall I pursue after this band? 
Shall I overtake them? And God answered, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them and surely rescue. So David asked the right questions. He's asked God, What should I do? Shall I pursue? In verse 9, So David and the 600 men who were with him, uh, and they came uh, to the brook Besor. They set out uh, where those who were left behind stayed. So they went a distance, but these men have been traveling three hard days to get to Ziklag. They come to a brook called Besor, and 200 of them were just too tired to go on. So David proceeds with 400. Now remember, we're leaving these 200 here. They play a part in the story shortly. Verse 11, as David and his 400 pursued south, they found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave the Egyptian bread, and he ate, and they gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And so it's the same three days. While David was just being discharged from his duties with the Philistines, that's when the Amalekites were in his hometown of Ziklag raiding it. So the Amalekite marauders, pirates, had taken everything and run south. David, pursuing them, comes across an Egyptian slave who was a slave to one of the Amalekites. And this slave, after he fed him and watered him a little bit, had some information. And he gives information. Uh, verse uh, 13, And David said to him, To whom do you belong? And where are you from? And the Egyptian said, I'm a young man of Egypt, servant to a man, an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We made a raid against the Negev of the Ketherites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we, we burned Ziklag with fire. His testimony, when he says we, he's saying, I was there, I saw it. We burned Ziklag, your town, with fire. And David said to him, will you take me down to this band? So David said, I'm going to give you an out here. You help me follow where the Amalekites are. And the Egyptian begins to negotiate. And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and it will take you down to this band. So the Egyptian knew, I've got to play this one card right. If you don't kill me, I'll show you where they're at. So David, in verse 16, pursues the Amalekites. And David, when he had taken him, uh, and when he had taken him down, behold, he finds them. They were spread abroad all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. David finds the Amalekites in a, in a camp, eating and drinking and dancing. The word dancing here is even the same word used of a, a ritual sort of uh, ceremony. But the Amalekites are having a good old time with the spoils they've taken from uh, Ziklag, which is Philistine, Philistine territory, from Judah and all the places they had been. So these are real pirates. Uh, verse 17, and David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men. Now, we can't get into this whole idea of the timing. David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. The Hebrew is very confusing, but the explanation is this. It was actually one day. The war began in the morning. David couldn't attack them in the evening because he couldn't see what they're doing to the wives and children and things. So the, the war began at twilight that next morning. And it ended that same evening. And the reason it speaks to the next day is because the Amalekites had a different calendar than the Israelites. And so it's real interesting, but we're not going to get into that right now, uh, how this calendar works. So it's a 12-hour battle, not a 36-hour battle. Uh, and David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, 
And David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought it all back. David also captured all the flocks and herds. And the people drove the livestock before him. And they said, this is David's spoil. So there's a good ending to the story. Everything was there. The women and the children, the young men, they were all fine. And their cattle was even there. And they brought it back up. Verse 21. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left behind at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David, to meet the people who were with him. So these 200 go to meet their wives and kids. Everything is great. Everything is back together again. Verse 22. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David. Remember, David had this scoundrel group of, uh, of mercenaries themselves. David's a mercenary fighting in Philistia down to the south. These bad guys, what do they want? They said uh, in verse 22 again, because they did not go with us, these 200, we will not give them any of the spoil that we've recovered, except that each man may have a lead away his wife and children and depart. But this is where David steps up for the first time really as the next leader of Israel in verse 23. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. David recognizes where this comes from. It's God's provision. Our wives and children and all of our earthly possessions were given back to us because of God's provision. And I'm not going to let you scoundrels tell me how I'm going to run this tribe, this kingdom, we have, this group. And I'm not going to let you tell me how to run my life. And so David intercedes showing this uh, uh, bravado. In verse 23, but David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, whether the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us, the Amalekites. Who would listen to you in this manner? For as his share is who goes down into battle, so his share shall be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. David brings the 200, too tired to go down with the 400. All 600 and their families will share alike in what they have. David is looking out for even those who are not physically capable of proceeding down to chase the Amalekites. And they shall share alike. In verse 25, and he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward until this day. We're going to look out for one another. And you see David's leadership really stepping up at this point. And when David came to Ziklag, they get back to Ziklag. Remember, it's all burned. And he sent part of the spoils to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. And the last uh, several verses detail the places where uh, 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 David sent spoil presents to these small cities toward the south end of Judah to let them know that David is down here. Now, at this point, and this is the tension created in the story, David doesn't know what's going on with Saul up at the battle. In fact, by the time David gets down to Ziklag and defeats the Amalekites, we'll find out that at that moment already, the Philistines, oh, I can't say any more because that's the next chapter. All right. What about this place called Ziklag? I'm going to ask a, a picture to be put up above us. This is, I just find this so fascinating. Three days ago on Thursday, the Israel Antiquities Authorities announced they found Ziklag. And so this town of Ziklag that's burned, they've been looking for it, and there's stories that go back for the past 20, 30 years, archaeologists looking for it. They find this place called Ziklag. And I, I'm not going to read the, uh, the whole article to you, except to say that uh, it's interesting that we now have this place found. But they find it. It says, research announces uh, their belief that they may have uncovered the biblical town of Ziklag, 
uh, located between Kiryat Gat, which is Gath, and Lachish on the southern Israel, uh, a place called Kirbet Ratyai. It has been the site of excavation since 2015. Many of the artifacts discovered show signs of being from the Philistine culture. The biblical town of Ziklag is noted in the books of Joshua and Samuel as a Philistine town near the city of Gath. A radiocarbon dating from the hilltop site indicates the settlement was from the early 10th century BC, a time period associated with King David. So the city destroyed uh, by the Amalekites, this is where it's at now. But what has the author done for us here? We're going to have to figure out next week what happens to Saul. But he has taken us and told us a tale of two kings. On the one hand, we have Saul, whose life was one of disobedience, whose wife was one of self-centeredness, uh, whose life was one where he's really looking out for his own interest, who becomes obsessed with a young David, becomes obsessed to the point where he spends his time chasing after David to kill him, rather than doing what God called him to do, and that's chasing the Amalekites and the Philistines out of the land of Israel. So Saul's true purpose in life has been corrupted. He's been distracted from doing what God called him to do. And so this is Saul's life, a tragic life. And when he spirals down out of control, where does he go? Not to God. Instead, he goes to the witch at Endor. He finds this medium seeking an answer. He doesn't hear from God. And spiritually in our lives, when we find ourselves in a place where we're no longer pursuing God's will, you may no longer hear from God. The Bible describes this also as a, a person whose heart has become seared. And at some point, this apostate person, one who may never have been truly a believer, but only professed belief, has now removed himself so far from God's place and God's will, he finds himself now at a place where he's all alone and isolated, and he can no longer hear from God. So Saul's looking for an answer. He's fearful. No longer a fearless man who had answers to lead Israel forward, but now is fearful himself of his own life. He cares nothing of his people. He's concerned only about his own life. What's going to happen to him? And so that's Saul's tragic life as he prepares for battle the next morning. In contrast, the author has taken us through this life of David, interweaving this story of Saul with the witch at Endor in chapter 28, breaking off the story of David and picking it up again. David, a man after God's own heart, is one who has pursued God's will. A man who, in times of distress, first went to Samuel, as we see back in chapters 15, 16, chapters 14. Samuel dies in chapter 15, and when Samuel's dead, David finds uh, refuge with his family. But chased from that place, he finds refuge with his friend Jonathan. David's still looking for places to find an answer. But himself then finds a place with the Philistines. That's the wrong place to go. But in his mind, that's the only place he could go. So he finds himself in a tenuous situation with the Philistines. And for 16 months at least, living in the land of Philistia in this town called Ziklag, he does war, not on behalf of the Philistines, but really on behalf of Israel. Torn, but in a situation, he puts himself in a pickle where he might now find himself really in trouble. But in God's providence, God removes David from this situation, this rock in a hard place. Uh, and, and, and in the Hebrew there speaks of it being David was in a narrow place, it says. And so David now finds himself back in Ziklag, but everything's gone. And again, he turns now to God. 
That's our answer. And the message that the author of Samuel is telling us here is in our times of distress, always be a people who's looking to where God would be. What is God's answer? What is God's will for my life? David sees God's provision as he and his men recover their wives, children, and goods from the Amalekites. They slay the Amalekites, except for those 400 who escaped. Oh, there's a reason we're told that. They'll be back. But David now is in a position to take over the kingdom at the point of Saul's demise. The author of 1 Samuel here, the books of Samuel, is interweaving these stories so that we can read them and see that there's a choice we all stand at a road. We can go one way like Saul did or go another way like David did. And that's a choice we all face. And so the question is, which way do we go? Let's find out next week what happens to Saul and in coming weeks what happens to David. Uh, let's stand as we dismiss in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for these stories you provide for us so that we can see the outworkings of your will in the lives of these characters. We see these same situations being worked out in our own lives, that each of us making bad decisions and finding places where we don't hear from you. But we know, Lord, if we turn to you, you will speak to us, you'll provide for us. And so we ask, Lord, only that you'll strengthen all of us and remind us always to seek your will as David now does, as he will forward pursue you. Help us be men of faith, women of faith, children of faith in you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.